Um, hello, everybody. Uh, a very warm welcome, everybody, to the latest now series of Investec teleconferences. My name's Philip Shaw. I'm Chief Economist at Investec in London. I sincerely hope that you're all keeping well in this difficult period. I'm delighted to welcome an expert in logistics this morning, Richard Wilding, Professor and Chair of Supply Chain Strategy at Cranfield School of Management. Richard, good morning. Good morning. The plan for the session is firstly for me to share some thoughts over recent market moves, make a few points on COVID-19 um, related market moves, policy responses from the authorities and, and the outlook for the economy, then to pass you on to Richard. Um, after that, we'd be both delighted to take questions from you. Before I begin, could I say that not only is everybody around all different parts of the world, but Richard, myself, and the rest of the Investec team are all in different parts of the country, so we're very much dependent on the nation's infrastructure holding up over the next hour um, in the shape of the technology for this call, and you know, perhaps that's part of the logistical picture which Richard might want to touch on in a minute. In the meantime, could I begin with some thoughts? With the virus itself, the number of reported cases globally now stands at 383,000. Italy, the current epicenter, has witnessed two days of lower cases, but at just over 5,000, um, that's still a pretty high infection rate at 8% a day. We've heard mixed reports about the extent of China going back to work. It was um, declared overnight that the authorities um, have said that Wuhan will be unlocked on the 8th of April. Now that's pretty encouraging, but even if the demand for, for Chinese goods and services is um, in the West right now, one question is going to be how ready China is in its various production stages to start pumping goods out and start shipping them around the globe. Looking at where we are uh, in the UK, obviously Boris last night decided that voluntary measures aren't having the desired effect on social distancing or social isolation, and the UK is now in lockdown for a period of three weeks, quite possibly more than that. What we've seen over the past few days is economic evidence beginning to build, and early this morning, we had some key indicators in the shape of the purchasing managers indices, the PMIs, from, for example, the Eurozone and the UK, and they dropped sharply. And it looks as though services have taken a, a much bigger hit than manufacturing. Now, if you dial back a month ago, uh, our thought was that there could be one quarterly decline in output um, and then a bit of a rebound. Now, that's not going to happen, though, specifically, I guess it might do in China. But um, the containment measures that we've seen around the globe now mean that we are going to be in a world recession. And the associated point, I guess, is that the speed of events here is just frightening. Looking at policy responses, last week we had an unprecedented, unprecedented number of uh, emergency central bank meetings. The Fed met three times in just over a week. So in the States, we've now got virtually zero rates, formal and unlimited QE, a number of programs to add liquidity to markets, some of which have been uh, revived from the 2008 period. In Australia and New Zealand, the central banks there slashed rates and started QE for the first time. We had the European Central Bank adding 750 billion extra 
a QE, um, i.e. of additional bond purchases announced last week. Of course, in the UK, the Bank of England has cut the bank rate to 0.1%, a new record low. It's starting QE again at a rapid pace um, with 200 billion of purchases of bonds. And Sunak, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor's extraordinary package last week, amongst other measures, announced that the government would pay 80% of wages to furloughed workers on top of what had already been a big budget um, and other measures earlier last week. So it's a staggering amount of policy responses and also a huge degree of volatility in markets. Now, it's really difficult to believe that only six weeks ago, global stocks were at all-time highs. Um, very different picture, obviously, at the moment. Um, we've, we seem to be on an up morning today, but the FTSE 100 is still down over 30% year-to-date. Now, I think it's appropriate here just to make a few individual points. As I mentioned briefly now, the speed of events is, is, is simply mind-blowing, and the authorities are doing their best to react quickly, but obviously they don't come up with policy details because they've had to put these things together so rapidly. So um, the granularity of policy is, is important as well, um, but that's actually lagging the announcements for obvious reasons. The second point is that in crises, typically the response of easier policy, both on the monetary and the fiscal side, is um, typically to support demand. We know the economy is going to take a hit anyway. Now, lowering tax rates, increasing government spending, and reducing interest rates, and starting QE can mitigate this. But that's not really the main point. The most important set of policies is to support corporate cash flow especially small businesses, because if you begin to get mass business failures and layoffs, that's going to lead to a second round of economic weakness, which is going to be almost impossible to respond to. So bank credit flow is absolutely critical, and it's specifically those potential second round effects which the authorities are trying to limit around the world. I mentioned equities earlier, and it was bond markets, though, which were very much in the spotlight last week. Um, we had a big rise in yields over the previous couple of weeks. And given that it was a risk-off period in equities, you would have expected those safe haven markets to have rallied with yields falling. And what was happening was that the safe haven markets were not acting as such. There were signs of illiquidity in many other markets as well, including rising spreads. Um, QE will bolster the bond markets. It will make borrowing cheaper and easier to raise cash and to get other markets functioning specifically as well. And that's all with the ultimate aim is to keep credit flowing. A point in the UK specifically is that we've had the Bank of England acting in tandem with the government. Now, we've all been fairly critical of the coronavirus policy um, in Britain, but certainly on the economy and the markets, the authorities actually get the problem. They've learned from 2008, and we've had a large degree of joined-up policy between the government and the central bank and the other authorities. And personally, I'm, I'm very impressed by the new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who's had a baptism of fire in his new job. We're trying to put together some global growth forecasts um, in what is an unprecedented period. Globally, we're looking at falls in GDP in Q1 and Q2, quite possibly in Q3, but we hope not. If you look at some of the official data that we've had, and I guess I'm pointing to China here as they tend to release their numbers earlier, 
industrial production in the January to February period fell by 13.5% below a year ago. So if we're trying to put numbers to, for example, GDP forecasts, does it matter if, for example, Q2 output falls by 3% or 5%? I guess it does when it comes down to it, but what's even more important is the shape of recovery. So we think it's almost more useful to designate um, GDP by letters such as V-shaped recovery, U-shaped, W, or L-shaped. Um, a final point I'd like to make is that I've heard it said a number of times by market participants that um, the most vital thing to get a more positive risk on environment in equity markets, for example, is that the um, virus tops out as the number of infections begins to fall globally. Of course, it's extremely important for a number of reasons, but um, in terms of markets and long-term economic health, um, what we are looking for is that we would want to see more signs that government and central bank policy is limiting the side effects of the COVID-19 hit to the economy. In other words, that those second round effects, if they are happening, are only going to be relatively limited. And we do think that the UK is taking the right steps. Um, the US, um, in terms of its economic policy, if, if not its health policy, is trying to follow all the with blockages in Congress, but it's really early days to know how effective those policies and, of course, the policies taken out around the globe are. So economies can talk, economists sorry, can talk pretty well about demand, but they're less good at supply. So to try and put this matter straight, I'll hand over to Richard now. Hello, everybody. So um, it's really great to be with you. And um, as in my introduction, I'm Richard Wilding. I'm Professor of Supply Chain Strategy at Cranfield School of Management. I work with companies all over the world. We're a postgraduate university, but also I sort of have a few uh, non-exec roles and uh, various other things quite embedded in the industry. So really what I want to talk through is some of the challenges from the perspective of the supply chain. And I just want to start by just reflecting on really what are the fundamental components of supply chain strategy. And this is important because that then starts to help us actually understand how supply chains are being disrupted from both the demand side and also the supply side. So if we think about supply chain strategy, effectively you're going to have for any business a corporate strategy for the business, but then the key thing is your competitive strategy. This is you know, how you're creating value for particular um, organizations through your products or your services. And so really, um, the competitive strategy is, you know, it's all about, you know, well, okay, um, how are we going to get demand, as it were? How are we going to create demand? But the supply chain strategy is all about the delivery of that demand. Sometimes we talk about the operational execution of the business strategy is what the supply chain strategy is all about. Now, what's important here is there are four key elements. In, in I'm keeping it simple for you all. Um, there's four key elements. The first thing is, is supply chain processes. There's then the supply chain infrastructure and network design. We then have the information systems, of course, how we communicate that. But then importantly, there's the organizational side of things as well. This is the people. So there's those four things, processes, infrastructure network, information systems, and then the organizational side of things as well. Now, if you think about the disruption that we've actually had and we're still having, 
Um, this um, initially, you know, when the um, initial announcements about uh, uh, COVID-19 were coming into play, and we started to see the uh, Wuhan region being shut down, very quickly it was realized this was, you could say, more or less a network type issue. What had happened was that an area of the supply chain network had been shut down. Now, generally, supply chain um, managers are very good at adapting to that type of thing. So um, what most large organizations have is approaches to proactive supply chain risk management, um, for example, which is really looking at where disruptions are going on around the world, noting where those disruptions have occurred, and then um, basically contacting suppliers in those areas to say, hey, uh, what, what's going on here, and being able to actually deal with that. Now, of course, as things have started to spread out, we've then seen the organization and people side of things also being disrupted. So if people are no longer able to get to facilities, that starts to shut down things in those particular areas, which can have a knock-on effect on processes. And also, um, you know, ultimately, you can end up with challenges with information systems, which we're also at the, at the moment noticing because on occasions now, uh, the capacity that we have available is, you know, adequate. But, you know, for example, I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls, Skype calls, and this call as well. And what we're starting to find is is that um, uh, because of the increased demand, there just isn't the uh, capacity there. So when we start to think about some of the big challenges which have occurred, um, before I sort of progress through and talk about some of the other effects in the supply chain, um, the, some of the things we've seen is, for example, air freight capacity severely disrupted. So if you think about the airlines now, you know, cutting routes and stopping doing things, we have to remember that often with regards to air freight, it's not just dedicated um, um, aircraft. Um, basically, the way that many of the airlines operate is they'll have people upstairs and cargo below. So what you will find is is that um, air, if if there isn't you know they're shutting down because they haven't got the people to go on the aircraft that also then starts to disrupt the, the cargo flows as well and so therefore um, we're, we're finding that so we are finding that large logistics companies for example are reportedly leasing aircraft at the moment um, I saw uh, one announcement in the UK press that one of the big um, uh, UK um, uh, logistics companies have actually um, recently just gone and leased um, an additional eight aircraft um, to sort of move things around because they're losing that capacity on uh, passenger aircraft. The other big disruption which has occurred has been in terms of containers. So if you think about containers, containers move from east to west. Um, and this is, you know, one of those global phenomena. Um, so one of the key things that you can find is, is that, for example, it costs, um, you know, an example I often use at Cranfield is it costs less to move um, sort of, uh, beer and maybe water products from uh, Europe to China than it costs them to move them from mainland Europe generally across to the UK. And that's basically because people just want to put stuff into those things to move them back. So I guess a good analogy would be like, you know, thinking about um, your local supermarket in the good times, um, all the trolleys need to be near the door of the supermarket, but over time they're moved out um, to other locations in the car parks. And, um, of course, when that happens, you then have to have people to collect all those trolleys and move them back to the door. 
Well, we've got a bit of an issue because all the containers have sort of moved out and then they're um, basically um, is stuck in other locations around the world. So there's a bit of an imbalance which has sort of been occurring there. And that means that we've got capacity at the moment in the wrong places so that when things do come back, um, there may be some sort of initial challenges in getting everything back into the right locations so that we can carry on um, as before. Um, one, one thing is also uh, just thinking about uh, food supply chains. Uh, with food supply chains, um, we've um, one of the big things which has actually occurred um, in recent days, particularly in the United Kingdom, the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport in the UK, the professional organisation which uh, represents, you know, all those involved in sort of supply chain logistics and transportation. So we often talk about the movement of goods and people and their associated supply chains. What they've done is they've done a call because what we're finding is, is there are parts of uh, the sector which have excess capacity now because of being shut down, but we also have parts of the sector which have reduced capacity. So um, that call, I got a call on Friday night in the early hours because of restaurants being shut down. Um, if you like, the um, large hauliers which manage the restaurant supply chains, they've got warehouses full of um, of uh, food um, and also toilet rolls, um, everything that a restaurant needs. And part of the challenge is, is that they no longer, you know, they were 80% down. So they had um, um, large amounts of capacity. In fact, this particular company that contacted me had 1.5 million cases per week of excess capacity um, available. Um, because so these are professionals in there. But what we're trying to do then is to link those people up with, say, the health service and the supermarkets and everything else. What has been good news is that there's been a relaxation of competition law. So this means that um, logistics providers and uh, supermarkets are being able to actually work together on the food supply chain. But, um, you know, so that is actually being sorted out from, from that perspective. We found that the companies who seem to be performing best are those that have traditionally used a model of buying capacity rather than product, if that makes sense. So what you might do is in your supply chain partners globally, you may buy capacity, but you don't know what that product will particularly be. That has actually mitigated risk for some organisations. Another big thing in the UK is, of course, capacity for home delivery. However, that's starting to come into play and there is prioritisation. My father, he's 80 years old. He's been being told to lock down for, um, uh, for 12 weeks now in the United Kingdom. Um, he was getting a bit anxious about food. Um, he could not get any delivery stock, um, slots from the supermarket. He's received an email this morning from one of the large supermarket chains saying he's prioritized. He's been able to get a food delivery for tomorrow uh, morning, and he's allowed one delivery per week. So we're starting to find those sorts of things coming together uh, quite well. So there's a whole raft of initiatives taking place. One thing which I think we do need to do is to learn from the past and um, I was reflecting on this this morning. Um, uh, Toyota, for example, in 1997 um, had a particular disruption in their supply chain where a fire started in a particular supplier. 
it actually took out this key component which they needed in all their vehicles. The interesting thing about that was, uh, from my perspective, is it meant it shut down all their tiered suppliers within about four days. But the other side effect was, was some of the macroeconomic impacts that occurred. So, for example, they had small disruptions to electricity, gas, food, and transportation. And we call these supply chain parallel interactions. So it's seemingly unrelated products being impacted on because of these disruptions. So one thing which um, I recently uh, picked up on was the fact that everybody's panic buying, for example, um, kitchen towels rather than toilet paper in certain nations. If you flush kitchen towels and things like that down into the sewer systems, it will block the sewer systems. So then you've got a whole supply chain being disrupted, which is the, um, you know, if you like, the, the water supply chain, as it were. So we've got to keep an eye on these parallel interactions as these sort of feed out. So when I'm looking at supply chain disruption, we generally have uh, really three things which come together. We have amplification, so there's a well-known effect of what's called demand amplification. This basically means that people will go in, you know, for example, we're seeing this, you will go and buy lots and lots of products. Of course, if you go and do that, you then demand, actually, you don't need any more product for a period of time. So you get high levels of volatility in certain products, and we're seeing this. You know, people panic buying in supermarkets results in a big boom of demand, Um, What then happens is the supply chain has to gear up to cope with that big boom in demand, but then people will actually buy very, very little after that big boom in demand. So you end up needing lots and lots of capacity and then very little capacity at all. That also then triggers these parallel interactions because people start substituting products and particular issues like that. And then believe it or not, we also have within these environments deterministic chaos which can take place so that's also um, it can actually create further um, if you like volatility within the supply chain networks one um, thing I'm just looking at the time but one thing I'd just like to further just emphasize is is that there's been lots of research on if you like supply chain disruptions in the past and the impact on shareholder value so when companies make trading announcements on uh, supply chain disruptions. There's been research which has been out there for quite a long time now, um, which actually shows that typically you get about a 20% reduction in the overall um, uh, shareholder value of an organization. So, you know, I spotted this some time ago that, you know, if if you're looking at this, you know, from my, my very simplistic perspective as a supply chain professional, if I'm looking at things, I can see that if supply chains are being disrupted, the likelihood is, is you are going to get a drop in the value of that organization. The research really has focused around a number of key areas like parts, parts shortages, which we're seeing, changes by customers, which of course we're seeing, rampant rollout problems, um, which we will see because um, some of the developments of things can't be done at the moment. So, for example, you know, if you're doing production prototyping, that may be held back. So you're going to find, if you like, people with new products in the pipeline, those may be delayed in the launch to market because they're unable to do that. Um, and also quality problems. And so, um, so overall, um, it, you know, 
when the supply chains are disrupted, as we're seeing, we are going to get these these particular effects. Um, the final thing probably worth just mentioning is that we find that supply chain disruption is a reasonably regular occurrence, but not on the scale that we've got at the moment. So we talk about at Cranfield something called competitive supply chain resilience. It's always been a challenge to get the supply chain in the boardroom and on the board agenda and seen as something that you really need to sort of think about and gain resilience around. Um, recent events, I think, will have completely changed the view within the boardroom. But um, I, I use something, and you can look at this. Uh, I've got lots of information online, so you're very welcome. It's all free. There's an online um, course as well which I have on iTunes use. There's lots of information, but I use something called the Temple of Resilience. Understand the supply chain strategy. Think about product design for the supply chains. That's very important in building resilience into your products. Collaboration is key. And this is the thing that really now, at this stage of what's going on within supply chains, collaboration, building relationships is absolutely key. And I think those organizations that really are good at managing, and I'm talking about managing relationships, not just, you know, um, just sort of thinking about it. That means you've got to have the processes in place and everything else to manage your relationships between um, members of the supply chain and really focus on collaboration. They're going to be far more resilient. You've got to have agility. And this is important because when we're talking about supply chains, often we talk about lean supply chains. We talk about agile supply chains. The challenge is, is that a lot of those lean supply chains have now turned into agile supply chains. In other words, you know, a lean one is reasonably stable, but now we're even finding stable supply chains are becoming incredibly volatile. So you need to think through how you can build, um, if you like, supply chain structures which can cope with the volatility. Another thing is a supply chain risk management culture and then getting supply chain transparency and also continuous monitoring and intelligence. And this is a key thing. Look out there for tools that enable this. For example, just one example, um, uh, DHL have something called Resilience 360, which is a really useful report, reports out there, which just give people some insights into the types of industries being disrupted and how supply flows are being disrupted. There's also online tools, for example, uh, for monitoring uh, border crossings and so on and so forth. I was looking at those on Sunday. Most of the European border crossings for freight are pretty good, and we have to remember that, that goods are flowing at the moment. Um, another thing which I've come across, demand for certain products is starting to increase in China. But sadly, um, you know, working with one UK-based company, they can see the demand for their products. Their demand for their products dropped dramatically in the last month. But now it's actually starting to increase. But unfortunately, they're having to shut down their facilities now. So they're going to be unable to meet that demand. So we've got all these effects going on. So at that point, I'm going to stop. And um, I really look forward to receiving any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. That was brilliant. Um, I particularly liked the uh, phrase Temple of Resilience there. It's now at the point where we can take some questions, and I will hand over to Rosie. Um, if either Richard or myself don't um, hear the question properly because of line problems, then um, we can ask Rosie to repeat the question. So, uh, Rosie, over to you. So our first question comes from the line of David Sheridan. Please go ahead. 
Right. My question was, um, when this is all finished, do you think we are heading for a period of uh, substantial inflation? Um, thank you, David. I think that's probably one for me there. Um, I don't think that we are. There, there will be, obviously, what we've had, as I said, economists are, are reasonable at talking about demand, less good about supply, and there are um, both supply and demand considerations here. Our guess would be that the drop in demand will be so considerable that, um, in general, that inflation will be lower in uh, developed economies for, for quite some time. Uh, but that's the big picture. There will be incidents where um, there will be shortages of products, and clearly the price of those individual components or the prices of those products will rise, and that's certainly the case on a, on a, on a more micro level. Um, I, I, I don't know how we sort of go forward as a world economy on this. Uh, we were already at a stage where more economies were putting up trade barriers. We all know about the, the US-China trade wars. It may well be that what's happened, particularly with so many companies dependent on um, supply from China, that uh, companies will be much keener to uh, diversify their supply chains. I don't know if that's something which, Richard, you've got a view on. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. Um, in the short term, I mean, for example, capacity is the key thing at the moment. And uh, certain, um, I've been working with certain companies who have actually said that really there is a bit of a bidding war on gaining capacity in China. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, um, organizations, we might find, um, you know, organizations are having to pay a little bit more to get goods from China at the moment because, of course, capacity is the key thing and if people are needing capacity. So I think that that's, uh, that's uh, quite important. Sorry, what was the other comment, uh, the, the, the other comment to the question uh, which you just passed to me, um, Phil? Um, specifically on supply chain diversification as a result. Oh, of yeah, yeah. So, so if you, if you, sorry about that. Um, so if you're thinking about supply chain diversification, we've also got some really big trends going on around something called supply chain 4.0. And this is, um, starting to actually get people to think very differently about supply chains anyway. So we're finding a trend, for example, to more or less, um, near, uh, what we call near shoring. So organizations now, through the use of technology, are finding that, you know, if you think about it, a lot of the investments overseas have been around labor, you know, having having um, um, less labor costs. However, with the advances, and these are really rapid, to be quite honest, um, with some of the advances which we're finding within the supply chain area in terms of robotics, the way we're actually working, um, automation, and so on and so forth, um, if you like, the cost equation is starting to balance out between having cheap labor and investing in that automation. So we are finding already organizations who are starting to near shore and starting to move things um, closer. Also, with uh, trade wars, that's a further encouragement and so on and so forth. So this is, a, this is something which has very much been on uh, most supply chain directors' agendas, I would say, for the, bar, the past two years. Um, I think that this is probably going to mean that when everything starts to return to normal, that people are going to uh, really sort of focus on this. So we are going to find some uh, significant shifts 
I, I would predict in the next sort of uh, two to three years in terms of the way people structure supply chains. The next question comes from the line of Andros Simeonides. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, good, uh, good afternoon or good morning. Uh, it's a question for, for Professor Walding. The, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the capacity is in the wrong place. I suppose there's a couple of questions I had. The first one was, once things return to normal in terms of COVID-19, how long do you think it would take for the capacity to uh, I suppose, resurrect itself uh, to get it in the right place, so to speak. Uh, and also, you mentioned that there's a bunch of companies that buy up capacity rather than product. Uh, yep. Which types of companies are these? Do you have any examples? Um, well, yeah. I mean, we're finding it um, – I'll, I'll start with the well, – how long will it take to actually get back up to speed? Um, generally, supply chains always find the point of least resilience. And I, I predict, if you're looking at some of the challenges which were going on in China – after the initial big shutdown, um, I'm, in terms of logistics flows now, we're finding that actually they're more or less returning to normality in certain regions as they're starting to open things up. So, you know, a few weeks ago I was hearing that, you know, if you're looking at, if you like, output coming into the UK, it, it was about, um, it got to about 70% of where it was before the crisis. So, you know, things dipped, then it was at 70%. In recent days, I've been hearing that it's, it's now um, near, it's coming towards normal on certain products. It depends on the industries, of course, that you're talking to and so on and so forth. But the restriction then, of course, is capacity and containerization and everything else. And um, so, Things started to return on their, if you like, their internal infrastructure. Of course, China's a very big nation pretty quickly. And I would predict that it might take um, – uh, it depends really um, on, the, on the nature of things. It could take, for example, you know, a few weeks if you think about container vessels and so on and so forth to, for things to start getting um, back to normal. So I think that the supply chains will start getting back to normal relatively quickly within within that thing in terms of buying capacity now this is done um this is done um if you're looking at say apparel um so clothing things like that that's quite common but also with regards to certain electronic items as well so people are looking at you know can i buy capacity for these things also pharmaceutical companies as well the, the key thing here really is what capability does a company have? You know, what is the capability? And I was going back to, um, you know, I started my career as a manufacturing systems engineer many years ago. And in those days, you talked about group technologies and various, te you know, ways of manufacturing. And it's interesting because I've having to talk to a lot of people about, you know, this making respirators. So we've got lots of companies now forming networks to make um, respirators in the United Kingdom. But, you know, you can't turn around to a, a pharmaceutical manufacturer and say, hey, can you make a respirator? You need to have similar technologies. And I think that one key thing that all businesses can do is to understand what capability do you have? You know, are you able to make a you know, what are your production lines actually structured like? Um, how flexible are they? Um, you know, because if you've got a particular capability, you know, whether you're, you know, it might be you're making cars. So, so therefore, if you're making cars, what other things could potentially go down a similar type of production environment? 
um, you know, if you're making, um, I don't know, um, electronic components or circuit boards, what other types of products could go down there? Yes, there's an element of dedication, but there's also a particular capability you as an organization have. So what you can start doing is looking around and you can buy, you know, you can buy capacity in that capability, for example, in your supply base so that you're then able to sort of bring that on stream. I mean, one interesting thing is with hand sanitizer at the moment, it was been interesting see you know some of the high-end cosmetics companies have started to move into that area but also breweries you know they they're saying hey we've got a capability here for making liquids and packaging them and creating alcohol so can we actually do um do do things differently there hopefully that answers your question and our next question comes from the line of charles hardwick please go ahead Hi there. Um, both of my questions are for Professor Wilding. Um, we've talked a lot about carrier capacity and the sort of demand-supply mismatch that you see in sort of today's disruption. I, I guess it would be helpful to understand what data sources you you look at to objectively actually measure the uh, the capacity in the system and any mismatch. So that's the first piece. And then the second is. You know, to me, a critical part of the supply chain network is our distribution centers. And without that, you know, often the supply chain can break down. We've seen in California and in China um, distribution centers be mandated to shut. Um, it wasn't clear to me from uh, Boris Johnson's announcement last night whether he was saying the same thing for the UK. It would be great to get your uh, your viewpoint on whether we're going to see a widespread you know, UK-wide shutdown of distribution centres. Thank you. Okay. Um, right. So if, if I'm looking at, um, you know, understanding the disruption in, um, you know, capacity and things like that, generally what I will do is I will uh, be looking at uh, reports from some of the, the if you like, the large um, – uh, logistics service providers, they generally will be putting comments about things, but you have to be able to pull this together. So if we're looking at, um, uh, for example, um, you know, this monitoring and intelligence, um, companies that do this with proactive risk management, they will more, um, monitor multiple beta feeds to be able to actually do that. And even one of the other things which they'll be monitoring is even social media feeds. OK, so they'll be actually monitoring even, you know, like, um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, union represent, rep, represent, uh, representatives in ports, for example, their Twitter feeds may be monitored. OK, um, because, I mean, this is all free data. So we're monitoring various things. At the moment, a good source, um, I've already mentioned them. I don't want to big them up too much because all the big logistics providers do, but I've just got one in one of their reports on the desk in front of me um, is the DHL Resilience 360. Of course, DHL is one of the biggest logistics providers. So those sources are worth looking at. So from my perspective, uh, the other thing is, is just um, as the former chairman of the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, I've got one heck of a network, so I'm monitoring LinkedIn. Um, I'm getting people sharing information with me and everything else. So, um, you know, the key thing, and I've, I've emphasized this already this morning to a load of people, is, is professional institutions are a great source of intelligence. And actually, 
I would encourage all organisations, potentially it's a good time to become corporate members of organisations like the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport or even the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply because those are networks of professionals who are working in this area. So that's a bit on the data sources. With regards to distribution centres, these are being uh, prioritised. Uh, the NHS supply chain is being uh, prioritised, for example, and also other products. Now, what has happened so far is is that they're saying that businesses that can uh, move things online um, are able to do that. So what we're going to find is is that what are deemed by the government as critical supply chains, and it's interesting that they're saying, you know, they've actually emphasised that clothing and um, electronics retailers um, you know, they, they were mentioned in the government um, thing. Now, I don't know why they're just mentioning clothing and electronics, but they've mentioned that those uh, those shops were, you know, going to be closing down. Um, I, I think the key thing to think about is terms of distribution centres is some of these are highly automated anyway, so there's not that many people. So if people are able to operate in a socially distanced environment, um, you know, that's great. And I think this is another driver which goes back to that supply chain 4.0 that really at the moment, you know, uh, one, part of the planning which was being gone through two to three weeks ago uh, with one organization I am associated with is what happens if we lose 20% of our workforce in a particular warehouse? Can it continue to operate? And of course, that depends on, to some degree, the level of automation and what's happening. If I'm looking at, um, I mean, you know, public domain, if you're looking at, say, John Lewis in the United Kingdom, they've got one of the most sophisticated automotive, or, um, automated um, clothing um, distribution warehouses, uh, you know, if you, you know, in, probably in the world at the moment, okay? Now, part of the challenge, though, that you've got to think with clothing is, is you've also got the return supply chain. So if people are selling clothing for online delivery and then you want to return it, there is a whole process which has to be gone through on the return supply chain. And if you're getting 50% of your products actually being returned to you, which is not untypical in some clothing supply chains, you have to think that your biggest supplier is your return supply chain. So um, I would have to give that one some thought. But I think that at the moment, um, most um, critical distribution centers will remain open. But we're just going to have to uh, see. I mean, um, I've got my winter tires somewhere in a warehouse, uh, um, which BMW run at the moment. Well, no, my summer tires. And I actually phoned up yesterday because I thought, oh, it would be a good time to put them on. Um, well, now I sort of think that my summer tires may be... Uh, stuck in the ether now till uh, next, win <laughs> next winter. We will just have to wait and see. But hopefully that just gives you some insight into what's happening there. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have no further questions coming through, so I will now hand the call back to Phil for any concluding remarks. Well, um, that was great. Um, thank you very much to, to Richard for a fascinating exposition of how the uh, supply and logistics um, industry is functioning in the current environment and what the outlook is for the future. Um, just leave me to say thank you very much to everyone participating on the call. Um, 
keep well and uh, please keep in touch with our conference calls. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, and I would say as well, um, feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, if there's bits of information I can post, I've been doing that. And um, when all this gets good, do come and visit us at Cranfield School of Management, perhaps. <laughs> anyway. <laughs>